The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello. I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Thank you so much for joining me and my guest today, and please go to my host page at Voice America where you'll find all the various ways to connect with me. I really enjoy hearing from you and and knowing what you're thinking about the show. Today I'm welcoming Lily Myers Kaplan. Lily is the author of Two Rare Rare Birds, A Legacy of Love, a story about one family's spiritual awakening brought on by illness and death. Through losing three people, though losing three people in one year brought her to her knees, it also led her to a renewed life purpose, helping people enhance life by embracing death through her nonprofit Spirit of Resh Foundation. Her 30-year career has been centered on guiding people to create lives of meaning and purpose as a form of healing. She works with people individually, consults with organizations, and leads retreats in wild settings. Foundational to Lily's work is her belief that connection to soul revitalizes life. She holds a master's degree in culture and spirituality from the Sophia Center of Holy Names College. She's been a graduate program director, a hospice volunteer manager, and an executive director of a small nonprofit organization. But Lily maintains, quote, My most valued credential is my personal experience of living a soul path grounded in the everyday world. Lily, I'm really happy to be with you today. Thank you, Cheryl. Nice to be here. That first sentence, soul path grounded in the everyday world, really caught my attention because that's what I what resonated with me in your book. You're talking about spiritual experiences, for want of a better word, but I felt the aliveness of the physical world, too. Is that a balance that just comes naturally to you? Or um, did, you, did you have to pull for that, I guess? Well, it's always been really important to me to be in relationship with my life. And I don't know, I started meditating at 19. And I started seeking to know who I was on a spiritual level. I think that's fairly early. I, it probably started earlier than that, but you know, seek, seeking to know myself spiritually was a really deep calling. But it was also really important to me to have real live relationships and not be overly, to, to use a, a, a phrase, overly airy-fairy <laughs> uh, or new-agey. I wanted to be real and in the world and being transparent and known and seen and related 
has been the most grounding force of all of that spiritual work that I've done. So, yes, it is something you've both come naturally to and cultivated, it sounds like. Yeah, I think it's something I've had to work at. And, you know, I'm 60 years old today. Not today is not my birthday, but I'm 60 years old, and I've been at this for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that when I was 30, I really could have articulated how important it is to me, to live a soul path grounded in the everyday world. But I was probably 28 years old when I came to one of those dark night of the souls. And I literally, it was a dark night, it was the middle of the night, and I had to make a decision about what I was going to do with my life next. I was at one of those crossroads. And in fact, what I wanted to do was go to massage school. And I'd wanted to go to massage school for many, many years, but each time I approached it, something stopped me. And here I was, finally making that decision, and I told my parents I was going to do this, and they flipped out. And then I flipped out. Mm. And in the dark of the night, I wrote my parents a letter. And at 28, it was very important to me to have their support and approval, and I said to them in that letter, and it was like the process of writing was what took me there, just like the process of writing Two Rare Birds took me somewhere. Writing that letter, I said, if I follow my soul, I will be okay. My life will be okay. My livelihood will be okay. I have to trust my soul. And that decision became the grounding force and the guiding force of the rest of my life. That's interesting, too, because you kind of had to stand up against um, forces that wanted you to go another direction pretty directly and just say, no, I'm going to follow my way. And it occurs to me that's kind of what you're trying to help other people do. Would that be fair to say? Well, definitely, and um, see how I want to context this is that you're right. My parents really had a hard time with this idea of massage. For them, all they thought of was massage parlors. <laughs> and uh-huh. all I could think of was holistic healing. And that decision to follow my soul and then decision to go to massage school led me along a very circuitous path In the way, I was a late bloomer. At that point, I was sort of traveling around and trying to find out who I was and what was I supposed to do with my life. Well, that massage school journey started me on a path of service that has been really circuitous, but has always been about linking um, people in their soul, in their spirit, and in their body. And... I've been a believer in the connection between all aspects of a human being and how one serves and informs the other. And that was the beginning, but, you know, when you read my bio, and, you know, there's quite a few different things that I've done, and I like to say I've lived a few lifetimes in this one because Mm -hmm. I've, in in the way of following soul, have not had a career path based on a five-year plan. It's been more, it's been more I can relate to that. <laughs> like, okay, what's true today? What's true now? 
But again, that could sound really airy-fairy, but in every step of my journey, I feel as if, as I look back now, everything I've done has prepared me and trained me for the work that I'm doing now, which has come, I would say, directly out of losing my family members. So much, so many in such a short time, but most Notably, and it chokes me up when I start to say it, my sister. Mm. Um, Losing my sister kind of rocked my world in a way that I was completely unprepared for. And I'm not talking about the kind of grief that one feels when, or, or that I felt when I missed her. It was more the shocking reality that I had no idea who I was anymore. After being on a life path for a number of years, being in my 50s, feeling like I had established myself in the world and was doing meaningful work, when my sister died, I felt like nothing animated me anymore. I didn't want to be a counselor. I didn't want to be a soul coach. I didn't want to be a director of that family camp that I was running I didn't want to care for the land. I didn't want to do anything. Mm. And I didn't even, not only did I not want to do anything, I didn't even know who I was anymore. And it was like when she died, I died. Which is, uh, I remember, um, I may have even mentioned this on this show before, that I, I was told, don't worry about holding anything back for after because you'll have to reincarnate anyway uh, when I was looking ahead to my wife dying. Um, you know, you do kind of die into a new, into a new sense of being with, with a loss that rocks you that way. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Well, my book starts out, and, and I hadn't planned to, to read this, but I, I, I will read just a little touch here. The, the book, Two Rare Birds, starts out uh, with the first chapter is, Who Am I? Mm. And the first section in that chapter is called Shattered. And I wrote, When my sister Lois died three years ago, and her husband Dave nine months later, the world fell out from under me. I had no idea who I was anymore. Never mind that my mother had died just three months before or my father a couple of years before that. With Lois gone, the foundation of who I knew myself to be was yanked from under my feet, dropping me right down to my knees where I stayed for an entire year. Who would I be in a world without a Lois in it? I wondered. I had no idea. Ushering my sister across the threshold of life and death had blown me completely apart. Mm. That's where the story begins. And it's not where the story ends. The story ends with my sister having appeared to me. In, in that year, when I, I surrendered to this shattering experience, and I'm so grateful for so many ways that I was enabled to be able to stop. I just 
stopped everything. Mm. And, you know, it's not the way of the world. No. That, that, you know, you really attend, that one really attends to their grief. But I just stopped. And I was saying to some clients yesterday, for about the first four months, I cleaned out all the closets and the garage in my house. That's all I did. I cleaned stuff out and went to Goodwill. And I got rid of stuff. And then I, it wasn't like I sat around and cried all the time. That wasn't how I grieved. I just cleaned it out. It was like some identity that I had been had to be sloughed off. And during that time, I knew that for me to grieve fully and honestly and find my way through what felt like a really dark tunnel, I would have to, um, I would have to find a support, a container. And um, so I entered into a year-long group where we went on retreat four times over the course of the year. It wasn't specifically a grief group. It was a spiritual group where we did all of our work in the natural world. And every retreat was camping or living in a cabin, uh, but being outside for the bulk of the time. And um, during that first retreat, we were invited to go out and spend a day with our ancestors. And the way that we did this was a kind of a dream walk, kind of an aboriginal dream time entry. And I walked out into the wild world. This was in Wyoming beside the Snake River, right beside Yellowstone Park. And it was just wild and spacious. And there were elk and deer and all kinds of... uh, It was beautiful. It was fall. And I was crossing over a little creek. And as I crossed over the creek, I made a conscious intention that I'm entering into this dream time. And... I invite whatever ancestors want to show up to please show up. (laughs) And a number of things happened, and these stories are in the book. Um, My great-aunt Myrtle appeared. I I didn't even know that she appeared. I was just walking along, and five minutes later, I noticed I'd been having a conversation with her in my head. (laughs) That's how I knew she was there. And I was like, oh, my God, Aunt Myrtle. And uh, so so a number of things happened, and I, I won't tell all those stories, but the most profound, one of the most profound things that happened was that my sister appeared eventually and she had a pile of papers, just a messy pile of papers and she handed them to me and she said, it's up to you to carry on my work. Here, for you. I completely trust you. And I was sobbing. And um, my sister had written an environmental nature immersion curriculum for a camp in Austin, Texas, where she's from. And I had been running a camp. My other sister started a camp. We have the natural world is in our DNA. It's in our blood. My great aunt Myrtle ran a camp, owned a camp where I worked as a teen. So there was something about this 
bloodline. I felt she was passing this on to me, this carry this camp curriculum. This is my work. And I thought that's what she was giving me, and I was incredibly moved. And about a week after the retreat is when I started having this feeling, oh, maybe I'll... Maybe I'll finish two rare birds for Lois. Maybe I'll I'll carry out her work that way. She had always wanted to write this book about what she and her husband had gone through having cancer together and how besides the suffering and the struggle and the pain that they experienced, they also awakened to love beyond what they could have ever imagined. And they deepened to spirit in a way that they never could have possibly imagined. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll finish their book for them. So it was this very organic process that I began to write Two Rare Birds, The Legacy of Love. And I didn't plan it. I didn't think I was ever going to write her story. And uh, she had told me the name of the book before she died. And I went to her husband, Dave, and before he died, and we haven't really filled people in here that Lois, my sister, and her husband, Dave, both had cancer in tandem for 14 years. And yeah, a long, long time. It was quite a, quite a journey. So I went to Dave, and I said, Dave, I, I want to finish Two Rare Birds for you. I want to do it as an honorarium to you and to Lowe. And you know, he was dying at this point, and he said, you know, very slowly and his way. He wasn't fully thinking super clearly. He was very tired. And he said, oh, Lil, that's so beautiful. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but what's two rare birds? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? Uh, What's oh, that's, that's such a great place to take our first break. <laughs> and but, but I want to tag something, which is that, to me, Two Rare Birds is, is so infused with you, you know, and both can be, be true. You told their story, and you also told your story, which is part of what I appreciate so much. So during the break, please go to the Good Grief Host page at Voice America. And to find out more about Lily Myers Kaplan and her book and her foundation, go to www.reshfoundation.org. And after the break, we'll talk more about Lois and Dave and, and your experiences through their illnesses. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
we're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is Cheryl Jones, the host of Good Grief. You can find me at Voice America and at my website, www.weatheringgrief.com. Today I'm talking with Lily Myers Kaplan, whose book, Two Rare Birds, illuminates the transformation she and her family experienced during and after the illnesses and deaths of several members of her family, including most notably her sister and brother-in-law. You know, Lily, one of the things that moved me so much in the book was how many different losses you had intersecting together. Um, And I know that you feel maybe the most transformed by your sister and um, that relationship and what happened between you. But I just wanted to acknowledge how... uh, profound it felt to me for all of those relationships to be intersecting in a loss world. Um, I've thought you captured it. You know, I, I know I don't know what your experience was, but I, I felt it very palpably. Um, do, do, do you think that having so many losses happening at, at once influenced how you were changed? By the experience? Definitely. Um, it, it feels like it's all of one piece. And, you know, I, I was talking earlier about what it felt like after Lois died and how shattered I felt in my sense of who I was in the world. But the experience of walking my parents through their decline, moving them into assisted living, moving them again, moving my mother again hospitalizations, all the while that Lois and Dave were in and out, back and forth, and in tandem in their cancer journey was grueling. I mean, Mm. it was grueling, and I I felt like I grieved so much along the way that when they each died, as sad as I was, I celebrated their passages because it was such a relief to, re- to see them be released from their suffering, from their used-up bodies. And, um, but there's, there's a way that, that we were all tied together that I think is very unique. And it happened, um, it happened in a really intensive way, in a strong way, as 
my two sisters, Lois and Sally and I, were preparing to take over the care of my parents in every way. We realized we had to take care of them in every way and parent them. And my parents' names are Mason and Margie. We called them M&M. <laughs> and um, they, they gave themselves the name. But um, So we had this uh, family meeting. And we we put newsprint. I mean, we were like uh, we were like having a conference meeting, and we had newsprint pads and colored markers, just trying to gather all the pieces of M and M's life in some semblance of order. And we had newsprint up all over the living room, and trying to figure out who was going to do what. And during the course of that encounter, as we sorted out the tasks, we also stopped and sat back and realized that here we were, three daughters, no children, not a one of us had kids, and we were in the final throes of really honoring that this is the end of our clan. This is the end of our clan line, and we are the final burst of that. Mm. And how are we going to do that? If we're the... If we're the final purpose for our entire clan line for even being in existence. What must we be here to do and how mm. we do it? And in that moment, how we cared for our parents and each other became, that was our soul path. All three of us made a vow. It was like we got married that day. Mm-hmm. And it, it was like a vow between us that we were going to clean up our relationship. We were going to clean up and express our purpose in life as best as we can, as best as we could through caring for our parents. But that didn't make it an easier path. In a certain way, it made it an easier path because we were animated and supported by our spiritual connections. But it, it meant long conference calls and people's feelings getting hurt and people talking it through and by people I mean my sisters and me yes (laughs) you had to go there right (laughs) (laughs) we really hashed out a lot of you know what that it really it wasn't easy and it was a labor of love and in a way, I, I think that was harder than their death, um, being with all that. So, yes, we're very tied together. And um, my dad had Parkinson's, and my mom had Alzheimer's, and my sister had brain cancer and breast cancer, and my brother-in-law had colorectal cancer. So I got trained. I got trained by love and blood and sweat and tears, how to be with all of it. The other thing that stood out to me in the book is just how incredibly, incredibly busy you were in the midst of um, preparing for those losses. You know, that there was so much work to be done and so you know, things coming out of the blue at you. Uh-oh, now I have to go to Texas. Oops, now I have to go to, you know, uh, the East Coast. Um, it just, 
it just seemed never ending to me, even reading it, you know, the number of things that were required of you. Um, and it also seemed as if you had that in you, in a sense. Did you know that you had it in you to start out with? Well, you know, in the moment, it was just putting one foot in front of the other. And, and you know, it was grueling. I think one year I traveled to Baltimore five times to move my parents. And, um, yeah, I can't even remember, you know, I to count it. But uh, did I know I had it in me? I felt like I had no choice but to have it in me. And, um, you know, in, it was only really, I think, I mean, while I was going through it, I knew that it was grueling, but only in hindsight at looking at the whole gestalt of it, the whole Megillah of it, mm-hmm. can I really see what it was. And, and in some ways, writing the story helped me to see what it was. Sure. And when I said to Dave, you know, I want to finish Two Rare Birds for you, and he said, what is it? And I said, it's your book. Lois told me it's the title of your book. And he said, that's the first I'm hearing of it. (laughs) (laughs) It was such a shock that it was like truly energetically and spiritually, it existed as, in a way, a soul pact between my sister and I that I'm the only one who knew the title, the only one in the world that she ever told that to. Mm -hmm. It happened just in a moment between us. Mm -hmm. And... Only later when he told me that did I realize that it had just arrived because I told her, well, you are a rare bird, low. And she said, that's the name of our book. Mm. So the process of writing it revealed so much to me. And I, I have to say, I, I wrote many, many books before I ended up with the book that is now published. But I started out trying to tell their story. And I found out after the first year of working on it that I couldn't tell their story. I had to tell my story. And, and so it really became much more the fabric of my own transformation and showing where we started and where we ended, all of us. Um, but... You know, Lois and Dave, uh, I forgot what I was going to say, Cheryl. Well, I was just going to say it might be a nice time to hear more of the book because it's feeling so present to me right now. Well, here's where I um, I would say it was in 2008 that everything sped up. My father died at the end of 2007. And in 2008, I was working up in Quincy, California, living in a tiny little cabin while I ran this camp. And I had just finished this big volunteer weekend when I checked my voicemail, and this is what happened. Lois's strident voice killed the buzz. Call me back as soon as you can. We both have cancer. We both have cancer again. We were diagnosed with recurrences on the same day. I stared at the ponderosa pines outside my window, not really seeing them. She kept talking, and I tried to absorb her words, 
until she noticed my silence. Are you crying? Yes. Every wired pore of my skin wanted her to be alive and healthy and vigorous. I wept through the entire conversation, but Lowe's spirit was strong. She was steady as a jetty among waves when she described the conversation she and Dave had the night they were diagnosed. Intending to write a book about their cancer journey, she'd said to Dave, this is quite a story we've got here, this double cancer story. His response blew me away. To me, it's a double love story. We're shortchanging it to say it's just about cancer. There's so much more to it than that. Other people would see six cancers over 11 years between two people. But that, to me, is not the story. It's not about the physical hardship. It's about all the growth and changes that have come with it. But in that moment, all I felt was sorrow. When we hung up, I could do nothing but sit in my chair sobbing until I'd wrung out every last tear. Then I crawled into bed and shoved my head under the pillow. Mm. That, that captures those moments of shock, you know, that that come in those experiences so well. Um, and also, I imagine, captures them very well. I feel their, their beings, you know. Uh, I can imagine people when I think of them, um, not so much from physical descriptions, but from the things they, st- they said when, when uh, all of this was happening. Yeah. When, you, when you read it, are they, you know, very present for you? Very present. I mean, I, I'm feeling them really strongly now, and I, I think, you know, it's hard to say who led who. You know, Dave and Lois, Lois and Dave, they um, they took turns, sort of paving the way to uh, higher consciousness in relationship with their cancer and their illness and their engagement with death. They, you know, when Dave said, "It's it's a double love story, it's not just a cancer story." I mean, who can have the courage and the tenacity and the beauty, who has that to engage with, I mean, slam, bam, thank you, ma'am, kind of hit you over the head, cancer one after the other. I mean, Dave had a 14-year, 14-hour surgery, 14-hour surgery, and when he came out, everything was as best as could have been expected. Lois promptly had a grand mal seizure. So it was that kind of in tandem. I mean, in that day, when they were diagnosed with this cancer on the same day, and she really was kind of ecstatic in some kind of surprising way. It wasn't just a coping mechanism. It was real for her that she understood that the two of them had come together to live this journey as devastating as it was, to sacrifice something in order to serve life. And I feel like my relationship to the two of them is that, in a way, I sacrifice too them. They sacrifice their lives. I sacrifice them in order to come to a greater understanding of what, to me, is the truest reality of life, which isn't just physical 
reality. And I could never have imagined the experiences that I had spiritually after they died. It's one of the greatest gifts of my life. Not that I don't miss them and wish they were here and sometimes think, oh, i got to tell... Lo- oh. Mm. Yeah, it's not that it's not that you would wish for that loss. It's that something uh, you made something out of it. You you wouldn't want to be without. <laughs> yeah. You know that's that's what I hear in what you're saying. Uh, the the word that keeps coming to my mind, Lily, is leavening. It's like a leavening process. I don't know exactly even what that means, but just sort of um, you know. Being being reduced to what is elemental, I guess, is what I mean. What what's really essence here? When each one of my people died, each one of them, just as they died, either just before or just after, I with my father in particular, right before he died, I had this soul to soul encounter with him where we looked so deeply into each other's eyes that I understood who he was that had nothing to do with him being my father. Mm. When my mother died, after she died, I had the same experience where her entire being and what she brought to life came crystal clear for me. And it was like somebody had just given me a good pair of glasses and now the world has been out of focus and I didn't know it. Now it was in focus. Mm. It's time for a second break already, which is, time is flying as usual. <laughs> in these few minutes, just be fear to, sure to go to the host page at goodgriefvoiceamerica.com, to my website, weatheringgrief.com. I'm available, available for individual and couples therapy in the San Francisco Bay Area or online all over California through Regroup. I'm also available for speaking and consulting nationally and internationally. Please find Lily Myers Kaplan at reshfoundation.org. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. 
are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I'm here with Lily Myers Kaplan, whose book, Two Rare Birds, explores her loss and growth during the illnesses and deaths of four of her family members. And I, it just occurred to me at the end of the break that in writing the book, in um, you know, starting your foundation, You've made a very fearless choice to live in those experiences. Um, I can feel those experiences in us talking. And uh, so that makes me wonder how that is for you now. The book is written. The foundation has begun. Um, how is it to live in this place, uh, you know, continuously? Well, it, it, I would say it's, it's very challenging and it's very beautiful. And um, the book has been out for just over a month, just about two months. So it's still very new to me. And though the foundation is two years old, I'd say that you know we're really stepping out into the world now in a brand new way. And what's challenging about that is the intensely personal experience, that this is the most intimate experience I, you know, there are many intimate experiences people have in life, but sitting at the bedside of a, a beloved who's passing is one of the most intimate experiences. And because my relationship with my sister had been so tumultuous <clears throat> and, you know, graciously and gratefully uh, we healed before she died and were deeply in love with each other when she died. Um, but that... That story, all of it, is so personal that being in the world, you know, having family members read it and know things about me that have been secret, having the world mm-hmm. know every last little... I think I, I laid my soul on... I, I bared my soul in the book. And yes, I agree. <laughs> and, you know, it, it was so cleansing and so healing, and I understood what it means to carry a lineage all the way back from our ancestors and all the way through to be the ending of the line, and the honor that it is to take that on consciously, and the challenge that it is. So it's exciting, too. I mean, I just want to say it's, it's, I feel very naked. I feel that's the challenge. I feel sometimes overwhelmed by needing to be as vulnerable as I need to be to be in alignment with the story. But if my sister taught me nothing else, that's something... I want to say my sister and and my brother-in-law because they were so open about what they experienced through their illness. They had hundreds of people in their world wanting to serve them and support them and be part of their world because they were so transparent. And... That's not an easy thing to do, to be mm-hmm. that open and let the world in that much. So it's really beautiful. And 
when I feel myself closing up, I, I, um, I ask the question, what do I need to do to continue to be in alignment with this story? And Cheryl, I just, I can't let our interview end without saying that the first time that Lois had brain surgery, she had a revelation while she was under anesthesia. And some people have proposed that maybe she came close to death. I don't know, but I do know that she experienced, while she was having her brain operated on, that the universe was made of love. And she felt surrounded by love in such a deep way that it became the rudder for the rest of her life, the rest of her 14 years of her life. Love is all that matters became her mantra, and she told it. She said it. She said it. She said it. Mm-hmm. wasn't that she was able to live it all the time, but she, she practiced leaning into love, being with love, expressing love, and that was the beginning of she and I healing our tumultuous relationship. And um, when you said earlier how sort of stripped down to the essence. I think that's the essence. I think that's really the essence. And And it's not... uh, What I hear there, too, is she wasn't saying love is the most important thing or, you know, I hear that a lot in in the work that I do uh, every week on this show because that is an essential truth that people seem to come to, but she was saying everything is made of love, which is almost a quantum physics <laughs> um, yeah. idea. You know, it's all the same material, um, and we either are aware of that or not, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Well, and that, that leads me right into the, the reading that I wanted to offer um, here as we're at the ending of our time My losses have led me to accept... Well, before I start, I want to just say what you just said. That's that's like... It is revelatory. It's not just a love between me and you, love between me and my beautiful golden retriever. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, she is. I've had the pleasure to meet her. (laughs) Love between me and, you know, the the beautiful garden or what flowers or my husband. It's something much, much more profound than that. And in my work in the founding of Spirit of Resh Foundation, I, I'd say that's an essential underlying um, principle that the fabric of the universe, if, that, if it's love, which is just a word that describes something that's really indescribable, that's mysterious and beyond comprehension to our rational left-brained minds. Mm. Um, if, if the fabric of the universe is love, and we here in matter, in physical bodies, in, in the physical world, are split from that consciousness, that building the bridge to that 
in, in a sense, the bridge between spirit and matter, between what we know ourselves to be with our eyes and with our senses and what is invisible to the eye but is as real as air. That's the foundational principle of Spirit of Fresh Foundation, whether it's through bereavement work or retreats or counseling or um, death education or anything that we do, all the very many forms in which we can offer service to the world, that bridge is our essential purpose. Hmm. And here's a little bit about how I, how I found myself here. My losses have led me to accept that being born, living a life, and facing death are parts of one whole package. Death, in all its terrible, heart-cracking, life-shattering ways, has shown me that any day could be the last. No longer will I wait to love, to forgive, or to walk as best I can in beauty. My belief that death is a sacred passage has strengthened. I've wondered why dying was not as openly honored and celebrated as birth, and I began to think about how our culture treats it as a failure of the medical system, one that's designed to promote life at all costs. It is seen as a betrayal of a youth-oriented, age-defying society that acts as if growing old should be hidden behind closed doors. I realized, no matter what has gone before, death offers a moment of truth in which anything can happen. And the realization that none of us will escape it became more real than ever. One day, while immersed in errands, as I drove from the dog park to the grocery store, a phrase arose, helping people face death is a matter of soul and spirit. As I drove, clarity grew until I knew with certainty that, frightening though it is, facing death informs life. They are entwined forever like an infinity symbol. The nonprofit would be devoted to awakening this truth. It would help people rediscover meaning even purpose, in illness, death, in grief, and in being alive, just as I had. This would be the grounding force of our nonprofit foundation. I had found my next calling. And quite a huge calling that is. Can you, can you, um, I guess... Say a couple of the things that you are doing with the foundation that go in that direction. What, what kinds of uh, work are, are coming to you to express that vision? Well, I really appreciate you asking that. I'm, I just finished a six-month project that um, Spirit of Rush did in partnership with Alameda County. Uh, Alameda County has a small program called Getting the Most Out of Life, which is a hospice, a coalition of hospice providers. And this one woman was hired, just this one person to do one part-time job to start to explore how to increase hospice utilization in the county. Mm. And um, what, what underlies that project is the belief that, well, a a small fact is the average hospice stay is less than 10 days. 
And many people come into hospice and spend one or two or three days and, and they barely receive the benefits of hospice. But it's available to help people have an incredible quality of life for a much longer time mm-hmm. that people often end up fighting to live, have the most horrible quality of life, and then they go to hospice and three days later, that's it. Yes. So one of the projects that the Getting the Most Out of Life did was a six-month thing called the Conversation Campaign. And Spirit of Rush was a partner, and we trained 300 people how to have a conversation about end of life and how to help people be less afraid to engage with the conversation and therefore more willing to really think what's important to them, what matters most, who are the people that are important to them, how do they want to face their final days, what the quality that they want their life to carry as they face their death. And that was, that was a huge project that just ended with a big expo and it was well attended and there were people doing dance performances for expressing what it is to go through loss. So mm. my vision is that we really rush changes the face of the way people relate to death in order to be more alive in order to be more present. And I hope that we can be of service to helping people make the decision. Sometimes it's better not to do the chemo. It doesn't necessarily always buy more time. Sometimes it and, and it certainly doesn't always buy more life. <laughs> you know. Exactly. Um, Sometimes not getting the surgery. And, and I, I don't go into this with a sense that I know what's right for somebody. I go into it with a sense of, let me help you ask the questions of yourself that are scary questions to ask so that you can make the best decision for the best life you can have for as long as possible. And in that way, our tagline, enhancing life by embracing death, that's our mission, to help people not be afraid to turn to face the thing that people are so frightened of in our culture. Mm, that's, a, that's a beautiful place for us to end today. So please, people, uh, look, at, look at Lily's work at, at reshfoundation.org, and I want to thank you so much for being here. Listeners, I hope you'll join me next week when Lorraine Taylor will be here. Lorraine's nonprofit, 1,000 Mothers Against Violence, grew out of her grief following the murders of her twin sons in a random drive-by. Lorraine now devotes her life to supporting other families dealing with loss through violence and working to bring peace to her community. Again, go to my host page at Voice America to connect with me. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.